Here's a true story. When I was a teenager, I thought I either wanted to be a composer or a writer. And I knew and loved amazing books by women. I mostly read novels, and I could have given you a long list of novels written by women that I thought were capital G great. And it's not just that I thought they were great, but these books regularly came up in lists of the 10 greatest books of all time. But I did not know or love amazing music by women. I knew of women composers, and I occasionally played pieces by them, but I never thought of music by women as something that could even approach this mythical, capital G, great category. I never saw women composers listed on those albums of, you know, 10 greatest classical pieces, 10 greatest pieces of the Romantic era, you know, the, the type of compilation album I'm talking about. I never saw women composers on those albums. And to me, as a pretty isolated, pre-internet teenage kid, I took that absence to mean that for some reason I couldn't figure out women could write great novels, but they couldn't write great music. Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast about thinking bigger in our faith, our ministries, and our churches. I'm Dr. Sarah Bariza, and I'm the Minister of Music at the First Congregational Church of St. Louis. I have spent a lot of time in graduate school, and surprise, surprise, there are lots of women composers, and they write and have written amazing music. But I didn't know that as a teenager because of the choices that other people, the gatekeepers, the leaders, because of the choices that those folks made. It reminds me of an illustrated kid's Bible that I bought the other day. I was expecting, like, I don't know, Jonah and the whale and Jesus feeding the 5,000. But as I skimmed through the list of stories, I just about started crying because this Bible, this highly curated selection of Bible stories, is chock full of stories about women and their relationships with God, something that you would often never see in a children's Bible. My conversation today is with Dr. Stephen Seek about his recent book, Teaching with Respect, Inclusive Pedagogy for Choral Directors. Steve is a professor at Lawrence University and co-director of their choral studies program. He is also a church choir director and accomplished vocalist. When I first looked at his book, Teaching with Respect, I immediately wanted to bring him onto the podcast, not just for the choir directors who listen, hi, and not just because I think that literally any of us making choices about programming, musical selections, scripture selections, whatever, all of us should be thinking about representation of women and people of color in our choices. That wasn't the big reason I really wanted him on the podcast, though. It's because of the overall message of his book, which is that we who are leaders need to respect the experiences of the people we lead and why and how to do that. Steve's particular area is choirs, but his underlying message about respect really applies to all of us, regardless of the community that we're leading. Choir, Sunday school, congregation, school, teams that we lead in a secular workplace. We might be the expert in the room and our expertise is valuable, but so are the experiences of the other people in the community that we lead. This is especially true for people like me. I'm an educated, upper-middle-class white person, and I need to make sure that the communities I lead are respectful, supportive places for everyone. For those of us who are choir directors, that often means taking a clear-sighted look at the music we program. Who are the composers? Who wrote the texts? And what kind of values are we communicating through our choices? Most of us know that we can improve, and Steve and I talk about what kind of steps to take on that journey. I want to highlight something that Steve and I get to toward the end of our conversation. It's that people who sing in choirs are making themselves vulnerable. They're opening themselves up to criticism, to failure. Hopefully they're also opening themselves up to growth. 
And that whole process is especially vulnerable because of how connected our voices are to our whole sense of self and how we exist in the world. So when we lead our choirs, and by extension our churches, we need to remember and respect how beautiful and powerful this vulnerability can be. We bring up many resources throughout our conversation, and you can find links to all of them in the show notes at musicandthechurch.com slash 27. Here's Dr. Stephen Zeek. The catalyst for the book came in the fall of 2015. I think campuses, college campuses around the country were having a really important moment, conversations that a lot of us maybe weren't sufficiently ready for, but needed to happen about race, gender, representation, inclusive teaching, and and I just found myself completely flat-footed. So um, specifically on our campus, my colleague and I had programmed a choral concert that had to do with traveling and journeys. And woven into that program were works like uh, Moses Hogan, Hold On, and uh, Robert Schumann, Zagornerleben, and um, the uh, sort of the gypsy scene from La Traviata. And in ways that really caught us quite off guard, students, you know, uh, pushed back and they said, do we have the right to appropriate Romani culture and identity for entertainment? Do we have the right to offer slave spiritual literature as concert entertainment and closer? And I'll just speak for myself. I really, there's no part of me that was ready for that kind of a conversation. It was, um, a lot to take in suddenly. Um, And I would love to say that I handled it with a lot of grace and wisdom, but that's really not true at all. As soon as I heard that students were uh, really interrogating our choices of repertoire and our choices of how we were going to perform them, um, I was very dismissive. Um, There's one particularly thoughtful student that I was teaching who it sort of uh, was talking with another student about it. And I I mean, I'll, I'll be very honest, I popped into the conversation that I wasn't invited into. I said something to the effect of, I'm really glad you all have now taken an upper level musicology class that shows you that music's history is problematic and complicated. Um, Good for you on taking that first class. I have a doctorate in this. So, you know, (laughs) why don't you sit back down and, uh, and let us do the work here. And I, and I thought there, that's that, you know, sometimes uh, 20 year olds think that they know how to do our jobs. Right. Um, and that student, I had so much respect for normally, um, and that student emailed me that night and said, you know, um, I'm sort of shaken by that response. Um, that wasn't the way I thought you would handle this conversation. <laughs> she was very gracious in not pointing out that um, I wasn't really invited into that conversation um, and said, you know, I really thought that, that um, you'd be more interested in having a respectful conversation about this. And um uh, and I, you know, I checked that email and then I just lie in bed the entire night um, thinking about it. And I didn't sleep a wink. Um, and I called that student the next day and, uh, and said, all right, tell me more. What am, I, what am I not understanding? What do I need to know more about? And bless the student, they took an hour. Uh, probably should have been in a class, but just spent that whole hour just talking with me about what it's like when you're not walking in Steve Seek's shoes. You know, but when you're walking in a student's shoes who is part of identities that are um, not represented very well in the world. And I didn't sleep the next night. And I, you know, didn't sleep for a while until I really had to decide, do I shut this down and say, look, I'm a professor, you all are students, get on board or get off stage? Um, Or do I follow this thread? And uh, I followed the thread and it is uh, 
sort of taken me into this, uh, this journey since then, for which I'm very, very grateful. Can you give us a brief overview of your book and how, how these experiences led to writing it? The book in a, I guess if I had an elevator speech, I would say I'm writing to other teachers, directors like me, who know what they're doing, right? I mean, we, we know how to program an anthem for church, and we know how to program a concert for a choir, um, and we know how to teach it, and, um, and we're good at it, um, but we don't understand why people are sometimes upset, right? So, you know, when, when you talk about, like, with a publisher, like, what's your target audience? I say, you know, well-intentioned uh, people who don't really understand oppression or concerns like that, so, like, white guys, um, generally speaking, um, although I think, I mean, hope it's not a book strictly for white guys, but, um, and what I mean by that is to really take more time than one is comfortable with, and I mean that very seriously, to take more time than, than one is comfortable with thinking about how a choral experience affects you if you're not you, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. So when I was in high school, it was the first time I sang in choir, and the first thing we sang was a Palestrina motet. And I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. Uh, and the next thing we sang was a Mozart motet, and it was the coolest thing in the world. Well, I grew up Catholic, and so this was these, well, it was not Latin anymore. I grew up Vatican II Catholic. Um, I knew what this prayer meant. Mm-hmm. Right? This was a yeah. prayer I was very familiar with. So acknowledging what that experience would be like if, if the first three things I sang in choir ever in ninth grade when you have really zero commitment to any particular class as a 14-year-old were all uh, someone else's music or someone else's experience, Mm. particularly if that experience was one that uh, oppressed yours. When I was reading through your book, I appreciated that you spent quite a bit of time laying a groundwork and helping, as you say, white guys, helping people who are uh, more majority than minority, helping people like that think about what it could be like to not be like them, to not be like, like to, to just like get that, get that question started. And initially when I was reading it, I was like, oh, wow, feminist theory is a billion miles ahead of this. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait a second. Like, that's not the audience. Like, it's not um, like you're, you're kind of taking people where they might be. Right. And that might be at a really basic part of like goodwill and wanting to do better, but not really knowing where they are. And I think what I really appreciated that is that you as, you know, you described yourself in a book, you know, a, a white guy who's got so many privileges saying, well, I'll, I'll be the one to start explaining this. I'll be the one to begin this conversation, continue this conversation rather than putting that on someone who, you know, is the minority high school student to be having that conversation, starting that with their choir director. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned feminist theory because it, it's one of those things as I was writing it going, anyone with a degree in gender studies or ethnic studies or something like that is going to need ibuprofen for the amount of eye rolling when they're reading <laughs> going, well, that's kind of a simple way to explain it. Or, well, that's not really what Bell Hooks is saying there. Yeah, or that, yeah, you know, yeah. but, you're, but you're not writing to those folks. Right, and, and that was sort of, you know, there's a, there's a really, actually in Ohio, really well-respected choral professor who has done a tremendous amount of work, particularly with LGBTQ studies. And, and so he was, he was presenting at a, at a National Collegiate Choral Conference and, and sort of threw, threw my chapter under the, <laughs> under the bus. I wasn't there, but it got back to me like 10 different ways. And he's right, like I, there's so much for me to learn from his work 
I'm writing for the person who does not want to have the conversation, mm -hmm. not for the person who's already in the middle of the conversation. Well, and I feel like in a way you're, you're starting the conversation so that a person in the choir doesn't have to be the one starting the conversation. Like you're, you're, um, you're starting the conversation as an equal with other choir directors versus the person in the choir who really is in a subordinate position to the choir director most of the time. Let's talk about respect, like what that can mean, especially in a church setting. Because your book is like a like the primary focus is for people who are in school settings, but there are so many ramifications for people who are directing choirs. And I think that we as church choir directors, we're negotiating respect for the people in the choir who primarily are adults, although we might be directing youth or children's choirs. Mm -hmm. But we're also thinking about respect for church tradition or church history right. or something related to like this idea of a universal church that spans the centuries. And so it's not just respect for people right here in our choir rehearsal space, but a, a much bigger idea of what respect could be. Yes. I mean, <laughs> there's maybe a dozen things to pull out from that. Yeah, I mean, I've been working in church music for 20 years, and um, I, I think the more I, I pause from running the script of choir director, right? This, tenors, you came in uh, up a step from where you needed to, bass is your flat, altos is to C sharp, whatever, you know, and really pausing to ask myself, why are these people in this room? Why are they coming here on a Wednesday night? Um, and, and that could be, 34 different answers among 34 people, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, there could actually be 40 different answers among 34 people. Because right? mm -hmm. some people come for this reason this day and this reason that day. So that that process of asking, what is this, what is this congregant doing in this room? Like, what are they looking for? Helps me to uh, discern priorities, mm -hmm. right? So... If um, this couple is coming and have been coming to choir for 40 years in this church, right, and are uh, no longer vocally where they were in their late 20s, mm -hmm. right, mm -hmm. and uh, one of them is very clearly um, in the process of, like, rapid onset Alzheimer's, then, I, then I'm looking at this rehearsal process already wildly different than if I'm working with a college conservatory and saying, <laughs> tenors... You were measure late, bases is a C-sharp, blah, blah, blah. Yep, fix it. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. you're right. We have a concert next week, and it goes online. So really looking, uh, and this is, there's nothing radical about what I'm saying. I think every church music director does this at some point as, as a fellowship group, right? As a, as a, some churches might call it an Emmaus group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I kind of think of it as like a kind of, uh, kind of Sunday school class. Yes, right. Where there is, this, this is a ministry through music. That is both for our own uh, spiritual growth and for the growth of the uh, church community, mm -hmm. right? That we are sharing what we do. I mean, we talk about Kierkegaard a lot, right? You know, mm -hmm. that, that we're sharing what we do not for the approval of the congregation, but for the mutual worship, uh, the mutual worship of God. But we'll take this part of it here and then please join us on this other thing. And that's what I love, like, uh, you know, those like rudder festival anthems where you know everybody sings the opening hymn mm -hmm. and then we'll take a crazy eight part <laughs> verse two and then tenors and basses please sing with you know decide and, you know, uh, and then every you, uh, congregation come on back in for the last verse while we take some insane desk camp because that that embodies that we're all in this together versus how do you like our state mm, yeah you know yeah our, our forgot so something you know, for you do we get applause for yeah. it this time 
So um, really reflecting on our purpose guides that I'm still very picky. I still would love that vowel to be unified. Yes, we, we would all love the vowels to be unified. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the dream. Um, but, um, but the first response after uh, a work through or the, this one would be fun for me to conduct. And we have, you know, at the church that I just left, we had a very beautiful Skinner organ and this would sound amazing. Nice. But would this be uh, something that would be Am I constantly exhausting the choir with stretches? You know, like the, Mm -hmm. well, if everybody's here, we can probably pull this off. Mm -hmm. So um, I I think about respect in terms of nurturing uh, every individual in that space. And that could be something as simple as as I'm conducting, Mm -hmm. can I pull my head out of the score and look around at these people? Mm -hmm. Right. That's Mm -hmm. particularly if you're playing from the mat, you know, from the, from the keyboard and you're just trying to give the neck head cue. (laughs) Um, just trying but, to keep um, it all together. Yeah, right. But can I can I actually just look at everyone and have a eye to eye moment where I sort of smile because this, this Margaret's always looking up in the soprano, sec- soprano section, so she sees me seeing her, and we sort of share that moment of authentic connection. So that's one piece of it. Um, and and I don't mean to suggest that I'm like wildly disrespectful and ambition prone with the college students either they're just mm-hmm. in a different place in their oh, yeah. lives right yeah yeah a college choir functions has a really different function than a church choir yeah yeah i think so usually and i think there's some other piece of it is sort of respecting the choir's traditions or respecting the church's traditions right yeah i that's a fascinating question can you tell me what's on your mind with that question because that could go in so many different beautiful directions when I was formulating that question, I was thinking about how respect for a tradition can also be part of systemic oppression, could be, can be part of uh, the patriarchal system that I don't really want to support. And I think of that where, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm at a new church job and I'm looking through repertoire from the last few years and saying, well, what have they sung? What have they sung every single Good Friday? What have they sung every single Christmas Eve? And all of it is, is music by dead white men. And that doesn't mean they don't sing music by women or by people of color, but the things that I would, as a, as a new person in this church, the things that I would see as this is their tradition, that's all, all dead white men. So I think of that, well, one, you know, I'm, I'm the new kid on the block and I'm I'm not really interested in upsetting people without (laughs) just cause, you know, I don't really want to inadvertently change something on Christmas Eve that gets people upset, you know, at 10 PM the day before Christmas. That's not my goal here. But at the same time, I'm saying, well, but this is what the traditions are here. And and I can see that really, really clearly. So, so for me, as, you know, as the new person wanting to respect the good work that the folks have done in the choir, you know, the things that make them feel like this is Christmas, this is Good Friday, this is Easter, because you know, I, I want people to have those feelings and respect the memories of people who've been in the church for generations. But at the same time, I'm like, well, but this is, this is what the tradition is here. And I don't, I don't want that to be the only tradition. Maybe that's what I'm thinking, that, that the tradition should be bigger. We should, uh, as that song says, we should draw the right. circle wider. Boy, that is, yeah, very beautiful. Um, yeah, and I think that because I was operating in two spheres, I was doing almost strictly at Lawrence after 2015 to prove to myself there is other music out there, right? There, there are other voices that have not been heard. And then at the church, you know, like 
keeping keeping those traditions in, and and I don't I think that's a cop out in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think again at college, like you have a new set of people basically every four years, so yeah, traditions don't have to live in the same kind of way as right. people come up to me at my new church and then be like, oh, I'm a fourth generation church member. And we've been singing that stainer at Good Friday since 1920. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and and on a related note, I think you know I've never been a university professor, but I would assume that you have more of a budget than a lot of churches do. Right. Because like I'm, you know, I'm in a relatively wealthy congregation. They can afford to hire a full time music director. Like that's, and a lot of congregations can't. But I certainly don't have, you know, one. I don't have the money to buy, you know, fifty two new anthems. Nor do I have. Certainly don't have the ability to have a choir learn that much new music. Yeah. So I much much as I'd love to have fifty percent of the music by women, that's you know that would never happen for the next few years just because well they don't know that much music and they certainly can't learn it even with paid people in the choir. Right. Yeah, it, it really is this idea of like well how can I stretch this circle? How can I make it bigger? How can I make to use the I word? How can I make this repertoire more inclusive? How can I widen right. this tradition? Because I certainly can't change it completely. This is a, this is such a great topic, and I think. So, so part of me just gets very like lost in the weeds of the like the strategy of being a choir director, which is that I would never want in my first month at a job to go, all right, listen, everybody, there's a new sheriff in town, and, you know, I'm burning oh, no. this cannon symbolically. Oh no! You know? Oh no! That is a that's right. a road to destruction. <laughs> right, exactly. And, and and we all have friends that did that and just and go, oh, go oh, to no, a new church oh, no. like every year. <laughs> For some reason, can't oh, no. can't oh, no. stick around. No, no. Um, and, and you're not proposing that, but but oh I think, no, yeah, not at all. Yeah. Any church members right. out there? That is not what I am doing. <laughs> right, but I, but I think that it's a it's on the one hand, oh, boy, this is going to take a while, so bear with me. I think on the one hand, I chafe at the idea that there are congregations that don't sing because I'll say, watch Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, everybody's mouth is moving on Silent Night. Right. Mm-hmm. This has emotional valence. This connects them to childhood. This connects them to their earliest days of faith. They have some very, um, like, almost a limbic system response to lighting the candle and then passing the candle to the next person. Uh, those of us that grew up Vatican II, like, you play that Marty Haugen massive creation, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm back there, you know. So the repetition of it over and over and the, and the emotional valence attached to it we sing Silent Night, I go home, I open a present, you know, my whole family's together, whatever. A congregation can sing on Christmas Eve. They're just, they're, they're not singing your new hymn. Um, um, so on the one hand, if we don't honor and respect the sort of rich, emotionally valent um, traditions, like, it wouldn't be Good Friday if we didn't have that anthem. Um, we, we almost sort of miss the most rich part of, of their worship experience. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand... You get into the whole, like, you know, well, Jesus on Good Friday gathered his disciples, or actually not on Good Friday, but on, you know, on on the Passover Thursday, Seder gathered his disciples at the table, and he broke bread, and then they sang the um, drop, drop, slow tears, because that's, (laughs) like, like, we're attaching, we're attaching this, this tradition, like, back to, Mm -hmm. to this uh, room full of, uh, rebellious Jewish men in you know in, you know, in uh, two thousand years ago, and we're going. Well, this clearly is not like someone at some point made mm-hmm. this new music. I would say Martin Luther's music was contemporary mm-hmm. music. Mm-hmm. 
you know, them imagining all the other priests and monks going like, oh, Martin Luther and all this stupid pop music, you know, like the, A Mighty Fortress was a contemporary hymn. Um, <laughs> so on the other hand, if we, if we say this is how it's been and therefore this mm -hmm. is how it should be, then, then anything after Gregorian chant, as far as I'm concerned, is, is some, you know, new pop trend that's going to disappear, which is clearly wrong, right? So I, I think what I did at, at Lawrence last year to prove to myself that this is going to get back to your sort of repertoire question. Um, I, so I have three degrees in music, and they were all very, very good uh, studies of sort of the Euro-American male Christian-centric mm -hmm. canon. Not because any of those schools had a Christian denomination or were you know explicitly patriarchal, mm -hmm. but that was mm -hmm. just what music was, right? And so I spent this last summer, I just spent like six weeks just following every rabbit hole online. And everything I conducted this last year, with two exceptions, was written by a woman. Oh. Um, not to tokenize, not to, not as a game, but to challenge myself yeah. to say, I know, I know you're thinking of the talus. I'll bet there's another mm -hmm. setting. And, and to sort of drop the gauntlet for myself and for anyone around me to say, this music exists. You just, it's not as easy mm -hmm. to find as Mozart because you learned Mozart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and for a church choir director, it's not as likely to be in the filing cabinets exactly. that, you, that you have. Right. It's just, it's like for me, you know, I, I literally have a notebook in front of me right now. Music to buy and anthems I want to buy this year and anthems I want to buy next year because I can't buy them all right now. <laughs> so my, my challenge for me is, yes, I would really like to get, you know, XYZ music by men, but I look at the, the anthems that we have and I'm like, well... At least for right now, I really should should be spending my limited budget in another way. And I think that that's not to get like too far into the, sort of the Marxist weeds of this, but I think that that's a lot of where I hear my students talking about is is like following the money, mm -hmm. right? Who's who are you supporting? Yeah. yeah. And and so when I when I'm ordering music by Elaine Hagenberg, who's a really great composer oh, in yeah. Iowa, yeah. who writes a lot of great church music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're gonna do her Oh Oh Love. Right. I'll link to that in the show notes. That's great. But as people buy her music more and more, she's able to become, as she just did this last year, a full-time composer. She was, like many composers, you know, trying to teach piano, trying to do this, and then mm -hmm. also compose mm -hmm. music. But then as people say, let's, let's hear more of your compositional voice and then buy 90 copies of whatever. And if a bunch of people do that, mm -hmm. then, then she can make the leap to saying, I'm now a full-time composer. Yeah. Abby Bettinas is a full-time composer. Mm -hmm. right? Yep, we're doing her uh, Blessed um, Be the Lord. Uh, I'm super yeah, excited about that one. So, yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I think the more people infest, the more, the more, that, the, uh, more other voices get heard. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that goes back to this idea of like respecting traditions or, or the, just the repertoire that we, that we have is the music, like, like I keep a running list of like, oh, I heard that anthem, I heard this other anthem, this would be nice to do in my own choir eventually. And the vast majority of music on my running list is by men. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think that, th that this music is really valuable, but it's just because this is the music that I've often heard, that's the music that makes it onto my list. And I'm personally having to be very proactive, and it sounds like just like you were very this, this past summer, being very proactive and thinking like, I have to... I have to widen my range. I personally have to make this decision and make this happen and put effort into it rather than just sitting back and saying, well, this is the music that I know, so this must be the good music out there. Yeah, it's it's uh, for me, it was reading Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own and mm. her, her thought experiment with uh, William Shakespeare's sister, Judith. I've read it, but I can't remember that particular story. Can you tell us about it? Right, so Judith is, is 
she uses this as a thought experiment to imagine that there's twins, William and Judith, and Judith is as talented, as great uh, a playwright. Now imagine their two lives running in parallel, and Judith either ends up sort of, you know, married and raising a bunch of kids, or on the streets mm-hmm. and dying. Just sort of based on sort of the gender roles and expectations of mm-hmm. 1605, right? And so the question then one asks oneself is, do I think that that women don't write music or plays or poems or books, or, or that this voice hasn't been supported and allowed over the past. So so if there is a preponderance of, of music by men, it's not because women were, weren't able and capable of writing music, but mm-hmm. because they were not supported in it. Or if they're, not to get too quickly into race, but like, do I think that people who identify as African-American did not have a variety of different musical voices and only wanted to write mm-hmm. songs related to slave identity, like spirituals? Mm-hmm. Or do I think yeah. that this was the only thing that people wanted to publish? Um, so really sort of asking yourself uh, and then and then sort of doing the work to find. It's really important stuff. And I feel like for church choir directors, we don't necessarily think so much about pedagogy in the way that a school choir director would and I'm thinking like how mm. like I think theologically oh what am I teaching the congregation theologically through these texts but we don't often or don't think about as much what it means to you know program music by all British composers who for the most part have passed away like that's and and then say but oh but I'm doing the good music right. it's, it's just not something that we think about and it doesn't mean that we're bad intentioned it's just there's so much so much going on that makes us think, well, this is the good music, right? Well, and I think that this gets into the word that I think we'd been chatting about earlier about um, complicit versus mm. like mm-hmm. active, right? So if when I look back at my programming, was I complicit in perpetuating sort of the, the implicit notion that music worth singing was written mm-hmm. by Euro-American men? And I go, yeah. Now, if you had asked me at any given point in my life that that oh, was I'm the what good I stuff. thought, I'd say, no. Yeah. It's just that's where I'm finding the good stuff, So, which is a sort of a implicit mm-hmm. slap against everyone else. But it, it's very different than, than being – this is sort of the broader conversation. I was just talking to someone about this between being like capital R racist, where you actually think there are like categories of races that are better and worse – Versus like implicitly racist where you say, well, I don't see color and I don't understand you know, where, where, where you just assume mm-hmm. that everybody mm-hmm. had sort of the same starting point uh, every generation yeah. and the yeah. same sort of financial laws and the same blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you just yeah. don't understand why some people aren't doing this well. And so it, it, I think when I look at and, – and my book tends to focus on the repertoire because it's just a little easier than like the infinitely complicated amount of personal relationships. I, I think I was sort of complicit in – espousing mm-hmm. the view that that all good music was written by white guys yeah yeah which is very different than like saying that <laughs> so finding a really really great thing to perform mm-hmm. for my choir by adolphus hailstorm for example challenges the notion that great music can only be written by white men and it also challenges the yeah. notion that yeah. great music written by black men is a spiritual i'm curious like do you have a do you have any of the online or the programs that you did are those available just for any listeners like me who want to check out and be like "Ooh, what did you find what yeah. did you program <laughs> right so we, we i think um in our emails we've been talking about vulnerability so that sort of the height of vulnerability is that for all better and worse lawrence webcasts 
all of its consequences. Oh boy. So, <laughs> so if I screw something up or if the choir screws something up, it remains on the internet forever. Oh my. My my church live streams but only keeps it up for four weeks. And I'm like, okay, that's good. Right. And then you're like, well, enough of that. Um, but if you look at, uh, if you just search like Lawrence University webcast uh, video library. Okay. I'll link to these in the in the show notes. But, but the programs are available as PDFs. And, and I'm still getting there, and I think this year I don't need to sort of do an experiment. I'm yeah. like, only women. Um, but, but to really, you know, like if I'm doing a program, I'm planning for this fall on music about why oh, music is great. Right, sort of the yeah. self-referential. Um, yeah, you might put Britain's Hymn to St. Cecilia, or you might put the end of the Beethoven Choral Fantasia, right, which are both mm-hmm. awesome examples of that. Or the Elgar, There is Sweet Music Here, which mm-hmm. is amazing. But then you might also do... You know, this song by Andrew Ramsey or about, you know, so reflecting mm-hmm. sort of the bigger part of the tent. And and this is the part that I, that I have to very clearly clarify with people right away is that I don't hate <laughs> Benjamin Britten. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Beethoven. Like, I, I wrote my dissertation on Britain. Like, I'm, I'm not kicking them mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. of the tent. I'm acknowledging how many people we have complicitly kicked out of the tent. It's not that, like, I reject my identity and I reject this, you know, and I, I don't actually hear that from even my most sort of like radically progressive mm-hmm. students. They're not saying I hate Beethoven. They're saying in my classes, in my ensembles, in my lessons, Beethoven is the only one that gets taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And so that is the part that I'm trying to name in the book. Yeah. And this is where I get a lot of in sort of the conversations about music from non-Western cultures, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. whatever we mean by that is that, and I still catch myself doing this, right? And I'm giving a presentation in Iowa in like a week that is simply called, Why is there a West African drum in this South Asian school? Oh. <laughs> and I feel that the title of the presentation is yeah. the presentation itself, right? Because you and I could talk for at least two podcasts about which accompanying instrument to use for the St. John Passion. Mm-hmm. Or instruments, right? Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you want to use a harpsichord? Do you want to use a portative? Do you want to use yeah. an organ for yeah. the chorale? Yeah. And which one is really, really historically accurate? What would Bach have done? Right, right. And and I did the St. John, and we had all of them. We used all three. You know, like, oh, this is better mm-hmm. with harpsichord. Mm-hmm. This is blah, blah, blah. Oh, I think at the Nikolai Kirche, they had this organ, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that that level of attention to detail is awesome. And I think that that's what makes a great Bach performance awesome, mm-hmm. you know. Um and then, I don't know, let's just put something multicultural in there, like a djembe is the opposite yeah. of attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't blame conductors because, you know, we don't have time and we don't have a degree in 75,000 cultures. Mm-hmm. So what I'm trying to do at the end of these presentations is to link directors to ethnomusicological um, forums. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, to folks who study that for their, for their so, own living. Right, right. Because I, I mean, I, because you and I took so many classes in Bach. I'm just sort of guessing. Sorry, that yeah. may be an unfair yeah. stereotype of an organist, but yeah, right. <laughs> I'm guessing you have an opinion on where the ornament starts. Yeah. Um, yes. But but we had a class in that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you know? and we had teachers drilling us in the right way. Right. Multiple right. teachers. Yeah. And, and they disagreed with each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but because we had that level of of training in that when I'm performing Bach, I feel like I have a pretty good toehold on it. But, you know, when I order something from Earth Songs, sometimes there's five paragraphs of background and 
word-by-word -word translation and an IPA, you know, and audio recording of the pronunciation by the composer and all that. And sometimes there's a sentence that says, this is a song about rain. This, the, you know, these are the words. This is the country that it comes from. Mm. And sometimes I just ask, ask, ask myself, do these students, can, can my singers even point to this country on a map? Mm. I mean, just something as simple as that. Can we come back to talking about building community? Yes. We've hit on several times about this issue of vulnerability and how choir members are making themselves vulnerable when they come to choir. Like sometimes you have like really, oh, I'm, you know, Joe Schmo fancy lawyer or whatever. I'm the, I'm the boss of my professional life. And then they come to choir rehearsal and you're the boss and you might tell them they're singing the wrong note. And, you know, I know this is church choir, not, not a no, collegiate choir. That's a, you know, different setting, but it is a certain kind of vulnerability, and and I think that that ties back into this idea of respect that we've been talking about. You just said it right there so beautifully. I think um, I th it's just very hard for me to maintain in my mind 24 hours a day that most people do not enjoy the sound of their voice, right? That's, mm. So that was my professional training after high school was in singing yeah. and you just you just have to get over it you have to listen to your recordings you have to you know you go on stage and then you get to the point where you're singing operas and you go okay i feel very comfortable with how i sound i don't sound like fritz wunderlich but i'm not bad you know you it, might be one of my few podcast interviewees who actually listens to the podcast i've had so many people go like well my mom said they liked it my right, husband said right. <laughs> but they won't listen right, to it because exactly. it's their voice and so but that's even that's even speaking but the vulnerability to to sing you know I, when when we talk about congregations not singing and, and, and I, how many times at coffee hour are you talking to someone and, and and they're so passionate about what you do and you go it sounds like you want to join the choir oh i couldn't carry a tune in a bucket right and that that classic line mm -hmm. and then i say what was the name of the teacher in fifth grade that told you and then they immediately say oh it was miss thompson right oh. you know they Almost, oh, oh, that's almost two oh one. There was some teacher at some point that said, "I need you to mouth this concert," right? And so I know in sort of choral oh, pedagogy yeah. conferences that that's like obsessively drilled in now. But in the fifties, there was there were the talented few, and the rest of us took appreciation classes, right? So, uh, mm -hmm. so they you learned very, very quickly that you didn't have the talent to sing. And I said, well, nobody told me I have the talent to sing. In fact, people told me not to sing, but I just, I knew I wanted to be a choir mm -hmm. director, so I figured I needed to know how this thing worked. But mm -hmm. nobody ever said when I was a kid or in high school or, you know, and I, in fact, I remember auditioning for a musical in high school because they were doing Singing in the Rain and I'd been studying dance. Mm -hmm. And I'd been singing in choir and they said, boy, you dance well, but we can't use you for this because you don't sing well. But I didn't, I didn't care. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't in the production, but like yeah. that was a sign to me that I should take lessons, not that I suck. Not that, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So, anyways, we're talking about vulnerability and community. Is that it's almost as it's it's almost as scary a proposition as if we said we're going to meet every Wednesday for an hour and a half in our swimsuits. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and do it every week. <laughs> right, and and then we're going to we're going to swim all together on Sundays. Um, so don't worry, no one's going to be staring at you. But you're like. Uh, I didn't think I had body issues, but mm -hmm. boy, standing here in a swimsuit for an hour is a little mm -hmm. weird. So I feel like it's almost at like that level of anxiety for most people. And as you said, that's a perfect example. I am a partner in this law firm. I tell people what to do all day. I have 
total power and authority mm -hmm. in my life. Mm -hmm. And then I have to stand here and I'm going to open my mouth and you're going to stop in one minute and tell me that I'm singing mm -hmm. flat. Yep. How many days am I going to yep. come back? And it's not to scare me or you out of like, okay, but that was actually fun. Yeah, yeah. At, at the end of the day, yes. <laughs> please, please do sing and keep. But yeah, yeah. It, but at the same time, but to celebrate, you know, that that uh, you are here sharing in this this gift of music. I don't talk about people having talent, but I do talk about music mm -hmm. as a gift mm -hmm. of the spirit, right? And so finding ways to make the bases not sound flat that don't have to do with Dan. You may be a good lawyer, but you don't have mm -hmm. the music talent thing. Because that's already the script in his mind, mm -hmm. right? So if he goes, I don't know why we sounded good, but we sounded good, then mm -hmm. I won. Yep. You know? But I think that that vulnerability is so powerful. And I think that that's, like, that's the number one thing that I want myself and any other choir director to remember is that you've already like purchased the home in the, in the metaphor of music. And they're just like popping by like they're they're not asking to buy a house they're just like mm -hmm. swinging by mm -hmm. and so you have to convince them that mm -hmm. homes are fun mm -hmm. yeah you're inviting people to to build a community with you and and i feel like also saying yeah. like right i will make this a safe spot like i i will lead my little community yeah. of my choir in a safe way in a in a way that isn't threatening in a way that isn't demeaning to other people to the best of my ability not that i'm perfect at it but you know yeah, but it's good and i think that that's the challenge is how to because we also know like if I if if you're just lying and smiling all the time, going mm, great, let's no, do it in because no. it was people, so great. People see you know? that, yeah. Like it doesn't take a, that many Sundays for people to realize oh, that choir isn't good. So just figuring out like, hey, that was uh, thank you for that work on that. Like I always want to praise the effort and then to say, what if our soft palate was mm -hmm. lifted? Well, mm -hmm. you know, let's try that. Like where are you going? And they go, okay, mm -hmm. that sounds weird, but so I think thinking about it in terms of how can I bind their spirit, you know, their energy with some basic tips that they don't need to get lost in the weeds about. Like with my choir full of vocal performance majors, mm -hmm. you can get immediately yeah. to the yeah. technique. Yeah. Right? The other thing I would say is that I try and talk uh, in church choirs a lot about like music is very clearly valued as part of sort of the worshiping mm -hmm. experience all throughout the Bible. Being perfect at it is yeah. never in there. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Yep. You know, so that the psalmist says, make a joyful noise or sing unto the Lord 38 times, 37, 38. Never says make a joyful noise, all ye with a master's in vocal performance. Like there's never an attachment to make an in tune, flawless, cut off mm -hmm. on beat four noise. <laughs> and, it, and it's in fact it's noise, right? It's not. It's, so hopefully we make it an artistic sound. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, and we want to do our best. Right. But our best is is different depending on the the people and the place where we are. And moreover, if we get best at the at the cost of mm. why we're making it best, yeah. I think we've because yeah. I was I think we've all been in a church that does yeah. that, right? Yeah, where it's <laughs> it's a room full of pros that are just going from this gig to the next gig, and mm -hmm. I was that pro once, right? That are just going, okay, was this what you wanted? Um, and we don't even remember. Oh, was that Trinity Sunday? I don't know what Sunday it was. I know we did this anthem and it was flawless. Mm. So trying to balance that, like, drive for great within the context of worship. Yeah. Hey, it has been really wonderful talking with you. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been a joy. Thanks to Dr. Stephen Seek for this conversation today. You can find links to the resources we mentioned in the show notes for this episode at musicandthechurch.com slash 27. You can get in touch through the Music and the Church website, musicandthechurch.com, or by email at musicandthechurch at gmail.com. I'm Sarah Bariza, 
and I'll be back next week with another episode of Music and the Church.